In building a successful academic career, it is a common belief you need to work and conduct research internationally. Not doing so can have you labelled as a risk avoider and not fully committed. But this is a path not all can or indeed want to take. My guest today is Dr. Shuan No. Shuan has challenged this assumption as the gold standard of attainment in academia. She is now a senior research fellow and group leader at the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology and works on understanding and developing life-changing therapies for motor neuron disease. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and you're listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. Shu, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'd like to start our discussion about your career and perspective in science by asking you to go back to the very beginning. And this isn't a sort of psychoanalysis session, but I was wondering if you could share with us your earliest memory of engaging with science. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tough question. I think the earliest memory was when I was in primary school, actually, and I would come home and watch a TV show called Once Upon a Time Life, which was a French animation, and it was all about bodily functions. Hmm. So, you know, how white blood cells work, how red blood cells work, what happens in the brain when you eat something and you detect salty taste versus sweet taste. So that was, that was what got me interested in science and biology, actually. That's amazing. And then so where did you where did you go from there? Did you know sort of in high school that science was something that you wanted to do? It was one of the options. The other option was history. I really liked ancient history and the other career I thought about was archaeology. Mm-hmm. But then I realized there's only so many sites that can be dug up. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> fair, fair. Although that's probably a naive way of looking at it now that I look back. So it was either archaeology or biomedical science. So then you started your university career and can you walk me through a little bit what it was like going to university, why you decided to study what you did? Yeah, I think it was a bit of a blind walking through of my university degree. As it is for most of us. (laughs) I I just picked science because I thought, you know, blanket science, that I should learn everything. And then as I went through the degree and I picked biomedical sciences as a major, I became quite interested in developmental biology and took that up as a second major. It was quite interesting going through university and passing because I didn't actually study during university. I this had is not to... the message we're trying to get out of this podcast. <laughs> I know, but I had to, um, I worked because my mm. family had a restaurant. So I spent a lot of time working as well. So I did what I could and yep. um, did pass, which was great. It was when I went into my honours degree and started doing lab bench-based research that I just became a bit hooked with science and um, just went straight from honours through to PhD and straight into a postdoc and here we are. So I think you've got an interesting story in terms of your career in science in that you continued on in Australia and you did your PhD in Australia, you did your postdoctoral studies in Australia and you've set up your lab in Australia. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience doing that and the pros and cons of not going overseas and how that's perceived in the scientific community. Yeah, I think I'll answer that last question first because I think previously it was frowned upon I think to not go overseas because you might have been seen as someone who wasn't willing to take a risk or to immerse yourself in a new environment to learn new things in terms of science and then coming back here I don't think that's so much the case now with the world and as you said you know no one's going anywhere we can do everything by zoom and collaborations I think are 
as broad and as diverse now than what they've ever been. So mm. you don't technically have to go overseas. But my choice to not go overseas was really a personal mm. choice because my mother was very unwell at the end mm. of my PhD. I didn't know when she would pass away. So I didn't make that option to yeah. set up a postdoc overseas. Unfortunately, she passed away before I finished. Mm. And because I hadn't set anything up, there wasn't really an opportunity to go anywhere anyway. I stayed here and I'd realised when I'd made that decision that it was a decision I had to own. It's not an easy decision to make and I knew that it, it might be a bit difficult staying in Australia with that sort of mindset previously. And I just thought I'd, I'll just have to make it work. Luckily for me, throughout my career, I've been able to find some very good mentors and sponsors and that's helped me establish my career here in Australia. So I don't think it's been as tough as what many would have perceived it to be. I mean, it might have been slightly easier if I'd gone overseas, but I think the the path that I've walked up until this point has been, you know, like any other academic. I think there's pros and cons of every experience. And I think what we're getting out of this podcast series is that there is no one right path. So exactly as you say, you made the decision that was best for yourself in your circumstances at that time. And then, you know, you build your career from that. Yeah, there was an opportunity to go overseas. Um, my husband is also in research and he was offered a continuing position in Montpellier. But we'd, we'd sort of sat down and had a discussion about, you know, after that, if we were to come back to Australia, what would our opportunities be like? I was just offered a fellowship here. So, mm. you know, we just sort of nutted that out and made a joint decision between us. And so we, we stayed here. So that's something I'd like to follow up on because I think it's something that a lot of people have to deal with in terms of many of us have partners and whose career we have to support. And of course, you know, being in a partnership involves compromise. So I guess I was wondering, how do you ensure that your career is advancing whilst also being mindful of your partner's career? And, and you mentioned that your partner's also in research. So, so how do you do that? That's a good question. I think what's really good about our relationship is that we talk openly about these things and we always weigh up the pros and cons. We're a bit more practical mm. in nature. Mm. Um, he has always been very, very supportive of my career. So every time I've picked up a fellowship, he's made the sacrifices to stay here so that my career can advance. Mm. He was in a sort of fixed-term position but now in a teaching and research position and really loving his job. And, of course, for me it was to support his decision to move into that mm. sort of position as well. And he's got a big teaching load. Mm. And it's for me to understand that when he has that massive teaching load for the medical cohort that, you know, I need to do the best that I can to help support his research and everything else outside of <laughs> the, the 200 hours of teaching a semester. Yeah, and I think that's it. Even if you have a partner who's not in science, it's the same. There's going to be periods where they're very busy. There's going to be periods where you're very busy. And it's a real skill learning how to balance. I think our commitment as researchers, commitments with teaching, as you mentioned, with all those extra what I classify as life commitments, so to speak. So let's talk a little bit about your research. And you do a lot of research on MND. Could mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about that, what you look at specifically, and a little bit more about the disease? Yeah, so motor neuron disease is a neurodegenerative disease. It's where the um, nerve cells in the brain and your spinal cord that control your voluntary movement, they start to die. We don't know why they die. But um, once someone is diagnosed with MND, their prognosis is on average 27 months 
after that diagnosis. So we work with a lot of people who throughout the lifetime of our research at least um, will have moved on. So there's no cure for the disease, clearly. So my research is really focused on how we can stop those neurons from dying. Well, why are they dying in the first instance? And we focus more from an energy use perspective because those nerve cells are really energy hungry. They use so much energy to just function that we think that an imbalance in how the body responds to the disease is exacerbating what happens in the brain and spinal cord. Everyone with MND is very different. No two patients are the same. Some people may live three months, some may live 27. There are others who can actually live 10 20 years. So the 27 months is an average. Mm. The difficulty of treating the disease or finding a cure is that because no one is the same, we're looking at a moving target. Mm. Part of the research is also trying to figure out why people are different and how we can start to classify subgroups of patients so that when we move into clinical trials, that we are working more efficiently for the patients than science as a whole. So I'm just going to be selfish and ask a research question because this is very interesting. So what do we know then about the differences between patients who are rapid progressors versus more long-term? And is there genetic differences? Is there physiological differences? Yeah. So there's only 10% of cases that are associated with mutations in genes that are passed on through the family. The other 90% of cases are just called sporadic. They Mm -hmm. happen where there's no real known family history. The difference between the cases of motor neuron disease is the degree to which the disease actually spreads through the central nervous system. If you have someone where the disease is very much localised to the brain or the spinal cord, they tend to have a longer disease. Mm -hmm. When you have someone who has a disease that affects both the brain and spinal cord, you get this rapid spread of the disease throughout the nervous system and and they're the ones who tend to have a shorter survival and a more aggressive disease. So in addition to all your research in this field, you do a lot of really active engagement with the M&D community. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how you got into that and how that informs your research? Yeah, so I first volunteered for a swimming carnival event for MND back in 2011, and I met Scott Sullivan. He was diagnosed with MND in 2010. I was working in MND at the time, and I'd transitioned from a PhD, which was primarily lab-based research, to a postdoc where I was trying to take a method that they developed in the clinic to track disease progression in humans to validate it in the lab. Mm. And because, you know, I was going reverse translation, like human to, to the lab rather than lab to human, I was very interested in trying to understand the people who are living with the disease. When people say everyone with MND is different, you don't realise or appreciate how different people are until you meet mm. people who are living with MND. And it's only through meeting these people and having conversations about how the disease impacts them, that I can direct my research. So a lot of the research in our lab is informed by the conversations that we have with people. We tend to ask research questions that are more pertinent to something that's impacting the patient Mm. rather than something that's out of my own curiosity of, oh, I wonder what's happening there because if it's not going to benefit the patient in the long run. Yeah, that's not your focus. Yeah, it's it's not my my focus. And so, um, you know, with that volunteering event, That first one, there's been volunteering events all throughout the year. And I think that's really embedded me in the community. And yeah, it's helped a lot in terms of the research. And all of my students and staff also get involved Mm. because they can then appreciate what the outcomes of their research will be. And do you think it gives your, your students in particular a better perspective on why you do what you do? It certainly does. I think 
they become a bit more empathetic in their mm. research and they can see that if their research has this outcome and they've met patients and they, they see real people who are impacted by the disease, they're more driven to do research for the purpose of a patient. What's also really good is that when the students and the staff become involved in the community, I think it can be quite confronting, mm. but it sort of it does give them a, a new perspective on science as a whole. From a research perspective, what do you think has been the most exciting development in MND in your or your career to date? What makes me optimistic about the future is that collaboration, and we touched on this before with the world that it is now, that collaboration is more easily seen in research now than ever before, and that's certainly the case for MND. There's a lot more cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary research. People are opening up. There's not this, this is my research, this is your mm. research. Those silos are being broken. And I think that's that's great because a lot of the research funding that's coming out these days involves input from Plex, we call Plex, and people with live experience. Mm -hmm. And they are always sort of in the background and involved in, you know, what type of research question this project is asking and, you know, how is that relevant to us? And it just keeps the researchers kind of accountable rather than duplicating research and mm. sort of <laughs> not the most efficient use of funds. People are coming together and what's really great about MND is it's advanced so quickly in the last five years that, you know, there are more trials today than there have ever been. Mm. I myself am running a clinical trial. I'd, in 2015, I'd said to myself, working with these patients, I want to be running a trial by 2020, 2021. Wow. And that's what we're doing now. And that's because we've been able to work with the patients and with the clinicians, with the geneticists, and it's just brought everyone together huh. to bring something to the patients. That's amazing to sort of target that as a goal and then, then actually, <laughs> yeah. But also given the context of what's happened in the last couple of years and all the extra challenges that COVID has brought. So how did you go from thinking, I want to run a clinical trial with a lab background to actually doing it? Uh, a lot of perseverance, but I um, established collaborations with neurologists mm. and that's really, really important because they also mentor me in the disease and what we can do in terms of research for patients. Having established collaborations with clinicians here in Brisbane, in Sydney and Melbourne, the Netherlands, the UK, we've been able to establish a trial that's multi-site. So we've got England, the Netherlands and Brisbane involved I don't know how it just it just sort of happened. I I saw that goal and I just went for it. There are obviously obstacles along the way, but I didn't let it stop me because the end game was to bring something to the patients. So I think that's a really nice lead on into our what we call rapid fire questions and don't don't feel under pressure to be rapid. Which woman or women have been the biggest influence in your career to date? The first one would be my mother. She escaped the war from Vietnam, came over on a little rickety boat. Hmm. So I'm first generation, Australian-born Chinese here. My siblings and I, so I've got five brothers, two sisters. Wow. She didn't know a single word of English but managed to set herself up, established a business, was quite successful in the restaurants and managed to get all of us an education because she, she actually never went to school. She was from a very poor family and she'd said to us that education and knowledge is what is going to help us become successful in some way in our lives and not have to go through what she went through in terms of a life of poverty. So she's definitely been the biggest inspiration in my life. So it was very unfortunate to lose her in 2008. Mm. But everything I do today still 
has my mum in the front of mind. In terms of research, the neurologist, Pam McComb, has been amazing in terms of being a mentor to me and teaching me more about linking research in the lab with research in the clinic. And I think the other mentor is Naomi Ray, who's a leader in a field in statistical genomics, and she's been very supportive of my career. And I think having those aspects, you know, the clinical view, the basic science view come together has been really great for me. I wouldn't change a thing. Mm. That sounds like some incredible women and some incredible influences. Overall, do you think today that women face fewer gender-related obstacles in their careers compared to, say, 20 years ago, or do you think it's it's simply just different? I think it's different. The world is dynamic. Politics is dynamic. And I think issues around gender equity is also dynamic. It's potentially better now than what it used to be, I think, certainly, but mm. there's still a long way to go. And I think my message to the women out there would be don't shy away from it. My mum taught me to be very independent. It's quite different from a Chinese background (laughs) to be a very independent young woman. That was instilled in me from the beginning and I think that's done well for me. Mm. So I would say that other women should just take the ball by the horns and Mm. go with it. But to also find very good mentors and sponsors and they should find these individuals from a wide range of backgrounds, male, female, transgender, anything, because you need those different perspectives in your life to be able to move forward with Mm. a more open view and to be more open and creative. I think that's one of the, in my career, one of the most exciting changes that I've seen, that there is this now emphasis on diversity and, as you say, all aspects of diversity and that it does make us better as people but also it makes our science better. Mm. So I guess that kind of links into our final question. What would be the one piece of advice that you would like to pass on to the next generation of scientists? I think there will always be ups and downs Mm. in your career. When you have the ups, certainly celebrate. Not that they're far and few between, but, you know, you have to acknowledge that the hard work that you've put in is being recognised. And when there are downs, it's to accept them for what they are and to process them the emotions that come with it. I think if you can understand that, you know, this is a down, it's not because my research is terrible, Mm. it's the funding environment, understand that it is what it is, feel everything that you need to feel and then move on and come back to it and learn from the experience because Mm. I think every time something gets knocked back, there's something that you can learn from it and it makes you, certainly for me, there were always emotions with a grant rejection or whatnot. Oh, I but do a you... lot of binge-watching of crappy <laughs> TV afterwards. Yeah, lots of ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> but when you, when you come back and you look at some of the comments, some of them you can just throw out the window and not worry about, but there are others that are really insightful and they're really helpful in helping you progress your research and to make things that little bit better. In that sense, the peer review process would have done part of its job. There's always something that you can learn from from every experience. That's right. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you and I wish you all the best of luck with your important research. Thank you and you too. You've been listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Dr. Marlou Stecker and Dr. Marina Fortes. Technical production is by Daniel Seed. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short. Thanks for listening.